Hello and welcome to Just Keep Writing. A podcast for writers. Hi, writers. To keep you writing. I'm Marshall. I'm Nick. I'm Will. And I'm LP. Guys, starting in October, follow our social media, follow our Discord. I will be doing some NaNoWriMo prep with everybody here. And we're going to be doing a group during NaNoWriMo as well this year. Um, it's going to be a busy task and we're going to be in and out of this one. Uh, but just keep an eye on our socials there. Jump into Discord and, and get ready for uh, a good NaNoWriMo 2023. Sweet. All right. Let's do it. So this week, we have a special guest with us that is here a lot, which is also kind of confusing. We are going to talk to Brent tonight, who stayed out of the intro just for this little intro here. Um, And we're finally going to talk about his novella, Unnecessary Chaos. So welcome back to the show, Brent. I guess, yeah. <laughs> I just was trying to make yeah, it weird. Welcome back. Yeah, just, just, just go for it. Yeah, welcome back, I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, we're stoked to have you, man. We can't wait to talk about this. So I'm going to turn it over to Will. He's going to get us get the ball rolling. He's been excited about this. Yeah, I've been waiting for this. Well, we're going to start off with the question that we ask all our guests. And so, Brent, I would like you to describe in three words that could be completely unrelated of what it was like to write Unnecessary Chaos? Mm, okay. Uh, as far as where, I, 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 I guess I'm going to explain each one, but um, painful was uh, one word. Uh, invigorating, and I guess uh, enlightening. Yeah, I'll say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this is great. And what I love the most about your response is like, it's like you were, Still not expecting this question. <laughs> I know. It's, I, I guess I didn't. I didn't think like of. Yeah, I like. I, I I've, I've been having to answer like interview questions too from like other people. So this is something I should have like been able to encapsulate quicker. But yeah, I don't know. No, to be fair, I kind of forgot we were going to ask that question too. But maybe it's just because we haven't done this in a while. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> so let's unpack those words and let's okay. start with the first one. And that was painful. So talk to me about that. Let's unpack it. So, well, there was, there were two things that kind of like happened in the drafting process. And I think it, it made it so much harder to actually write the story. So the, the, the first thing that happened was, um, for like the first time in, in years. And it's so funny. It just happened when it's, this has happened. I kind of like, I kind of, for the first time in years, like there was actually someone I was interested in uh, romantically and, you know, it was, it was unrequited. Right. And I mean, that happens it's life, but it just so happens to happen when I'm writing a story about two people who are in love. And I'm like, well, fuck that. I don't want to talk about that right now. I want to, like, I don't want to think about love. Like I just got fucking rejected. Like I don't want to have to write about this. And, you know, so that, that was making it hard. But then the second thing, which I think is actually the, 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 the deeper thing is that, um, right about the time that I started writing this, my, um, my writing mentor from like the time I was like, I don't know, 19, um, he passed away. And so I didn't really deal with it. I just kind of was like, I got to write this. I got to finish this. You know, this is what um, he would have wanted me to do. You know, I shouldn't, I I, I can't right now. And then uh, I didn't deal with it. And I think if I'm, if I'm being honest with myself, I should have taken the time to say, you know what, maybe I can't write this right now. I, I need to, I need to grieve. And I didn't grieve and I just pushed through and wrote it anyway. And I couldn't understand like why writing every day at certain points was so fucking hard. It was just like, I just like, I can't. And then, um, and the craziest thing completely unrelated to this, but the moment when I knew I didn't actually take the time to grieve was when the, um, Wakanda forever trailer came out the very, the very, very first one. And I, I watched it like 30 times in a row and cried every all 30 times. And um, 
I guess it was because like he introduced me to that character and he was like such a big cornerstone for me and like the the guy that kind of like gave me the perseverance to keep writing. Like he was one of he wasn't the first person, but he was one of those people who was like, you can do this. And and I know you can do this because of how hard you work and how much you don't give up. And and I think the the other thing, too, that was kind of like in the background was that me and him had talked about doing something together maybe a month before he passed. And I didn't get a chance to follow up with him on it. And so. So all of that was kind of like in the background and it just made it. And I think not taking the time to deal with him passing just made every day of that so hard, unnecessarily. Like, I shouldn't have done that to myself. And I think I've said that in a couple of the other interviews I've done. It's like, if if I could give any advice to anybody, if you're in that situation, you just have something really hard going on, it is okay to just say, I need a break or I can't do this and, and step back. Because I think I did... No, I don't. I know I did. I know I did damage to myself by pushing through that when I shouldn't have. So. And what about invigorating? So, um, when I got to the process after the drafting, when I actually got to the process of like sitting with Dave to talk about editing it and getting it like stronger, that was actually really cool because I was so sure what I turned in was a complete and utter disaster that this man was going to rescind the contract. Just. Cancel all the the promotion conversations, whatever. It's just going to be a done deal. And um, yeah, no, it wasn't that. He was like, he was like, it's not, it's like, cut yourself some slack. I think me and him talked about it at Worldcon. And he was like, look, cut yourself some slack. It's not that bad. We're going to get it up to shape. And so working on that was actually kind of cool because, you know, you can, there's always those moments when you go back and reread your manuscript and you come like, oh, that wasn't so bad. Like, oh, okay, maybe I maybe I can do words actually. So, <laughs> so yeah, so um, so that was kind of cool to kind of like get through it and to kind of like affirm that like, oh, okay, I can actually create and finish a thing from start to finish. So, and what about enlightening? So the, uh, the reason I say enlightening is, is that I think like every project teaches you a little more about yourself and what you want to do and how you want to do it and like uh, kind of like how you want to approach writing. And like sometimes you don't know a certain thing about yourself until you're like hip deep in a project. And, you know, so I kind of just I learned some things about like what I want to say with my work and like how I want to say it a little more, I think in terms of like, um, in terms of like how I want to portray, like, you know, being, being gay or how I want to portray, like the kind of worlds I want to build and, you know, how, like, yeah. So why don't you give uh, a pitch and tell the listeners like about what is a necessary chaos about? Okay, so the way I kind of describe it to people is if it, um, Mr. and Mrs. Smith start two gay black men and instead of guns, it was magic. But you still got the assassins, you still got the the uh, the espionage, you still have the spies and all that. So that would be my quick pitch to anyone that wanted to know what it's about. Okay, LP? So I'm curious, um, what texts books like you feel like helped you prepare to write this story okay so i would say text wise um i I drew a lot of inspiration from the craft sequence which everyone knows is like one of my favorite things but especially in terms of like how like you have that that very modern feeling world that walks right alongside um magic and, and monsters and you know how I kind of like uh, if it's like a urban epic fantasy almost, I guess that's like one of the bigger, biggest ones I'd say Jade city too, a little bit in terms of like how um, it kind of portrayed like those uh, not family dynamics, but more of like the underground scene, I guess is uh, something I was thinking about when, um, when writing it. So yeah, if I had to point to two texts, like book wise, I feel like, Oh, 
and uh, I, I can't believe I forgot this. So not necessarily because of what the story was actually about, but because of how he did it. Um, Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps, because that was one of the first books I ever read that like I felt like took the language of blackness, particularly AAVE, and just was like, oh, I'm doing this and it's going to go right alongside fantasy and you're going to take it. And that's what it is. So, yeah. Languages, because it was, it was multiple dialects going on in there. And it was like, look at how, how much blackness you can get in one place. Yes, yes. And I was just like, yeah, I don't know if I'm as good as he is, but I'm going to damn sure try to like do something like that. So I'm glad you said that, because I described it at, to people who were you know reading science fiction. I described it as um, How to Lose the Time War meets Kai Shanti Wilson. And Ooh, I was wow. like... That's a big. <laughs> I, I was like, that's how I would fuse the two together. So I want you to talk about our two main protagonists. Um, talk to me, let the, tell the listeners their names, and talk to me about how you created their individual voices. Because the when you when you read it. They both have these really uh, defining voices throughout the novel. You don't. You definitely get the. You definitely get the sense, and like from a craft perspective, that they're two individualized voices. So, talk to us about creating those two characters and how it came about. So, um, their names are uh, Altus and Vade, and. So the what kind of like created what created them really is um my time in Atlanta in my twenties uh being um just kind of like for the first time exploring like being black and gay and being out on the gay scene out there and seeing that there's um there's I'm not gonna say too distinct but there's definitely distinct categories of black and gay men that exist in Atlanta. And um, and Althus and Bay are in some ways a little representative of some of the stuff I encountered. So um, Vade is this, uh, he's kind of like this corporate, clean cut, you know, smooth talker. But um, that gives a, a if, if he wasn't in his like, if he was in the real life context, you'd probably think he was a little bougie. Um, so that uh, that was kind of like how I would describe him in a nutshell. And then Althus is uh, he's from the streets. <laughs> just a, he's just I guess I can sum him up. He's a uh, he's more of a uh, he's more of a, like I'm gonna keep it real with you. I don't have time for this bullshit. I, I I'm not trying to fit in with these people. Whereas I think Bade is more like um, he's kind of like you know I'm trying to like I'm trying not to make that many waves. I'm trying to like you know navigate the navigate the system so i think that's if i had to describe them in uh where where it came from i guess it came from that part of my life and then how would you say you went about like deepening them you know so you have this initial like uh idea and like influences of creating the characters but then you really deepened them throughout the story and you learn it in the novella so how did you go about that process? So there's this thing that Ken Liu talks about, and it has stuck with me for a really long time when he talks about um, characterization. And the thing he was kind of saying is that, like, we are all made up of stories. Our worldview is made up of stories. And when you ask somebody what does, let's say, honor mean to them, well, most people are going to have a story about I think of honor because I remember my father being in the military and, you know, serving with integrity or something like that. So everybody has a story typically that they associate with, with a particular feeling or emotion or sentiment. And we either, we either build our lives trying to mimic those stories or we build our lives trying to be in opposition to those stories. Right. And so with them, the way I kind of deepened them was like, okay, you have someone like Bade. He 
he works for this this corporatist like empire. Well, why would he do that? Well, for him, he he thinks of, you know, his sister and how she was so willing to to work for these people. And she was someone he admired. He was, she was someone he cared about deeply. And so he holds on to that story and it kind of like kind of like serves as his bedrock in, in terms of why he continues to do the things that he does, even when it gives him pause in some cases. Whereas you have um, someone like, you know, someone like Althus, he uh, his only stories are, you know, traumatizing ones. And he he wants to be in opposition to uh, in opposition to what happened to him. So when I, I try to think about like, you know, what memories, what stories actually kind of like form their bedrock. And I feel like that is one of the easiest ways to kind of like deepen people because it, it makes you start asking questions. Well, if like, you know, where did they hear this story? Or is this story one that they, is it a true story? Or is it one that they kind of like, you know, they're lying to themselves about, all right, is it some mixture of both? And um, yeah, so I guess that's just one way I kind of try to think about it when, when I was characterizing them, like what what stories do they tell themselves? Like Vade has this idea in his head that like, okay, the people I work for may not be so great, but the thing that they're trying to build is going to be great. So I'm going to, you know, he he kind of rationalizes to himself that like this ideal, this story, tale, this fairy tale world that he thinks is going to happen will eventually happen. So yeah, so I guess kind of long story uh, to bring it all back. I, I think of like, what what do they tell themselves about their world and how do they deal with it? Marshall. I didn't know. Uh, do you have a follow-up or are we good? Can I ask something else? I I do, but go ahead. No, you okay. go ahead. I just, I, so um, I also want to clarify too, guys, we're not going to do too many spoilers in this episode, right? Because the book's not out yet or how do we want to approach that? Oh no, we're going to, there's going to be some spoilers, but I'm going to try to keep them because this is like just part one of like a deep dive. Yeah, for sure. So that's what I'm trying to figure out. So, um, we just want to let the listeners know that there might be some minor spoilers going forward. So, um, so I would, my question is I fell in love with this magic system that you have, and we've talked a ton about magic systems. So I just want to know, like, it's so, I don't know, something about it for me. I love the idea of people not in the know hearing something, but actually something else is being said and, and what is kind of going on behind the scenes there. So I don't know, is this something you just cooked up? Where'd you come up with this? And if you can maybe not so spoilerly explain what two voices. So essentially this is, this is the thematically, this is what day-to-day life is for like black people, especially black gay people. That that's what I was going for with that. Is that you know, I can speak to another uh, black gay person, and sometimes without saying a single word, and have a whole conversation. Because that happened to me one time. Uh, I was in the club, and this 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 drunk white girl, she did something rude, and I looked at the black gay man. He looked at me, and like we just looked at each other for five seconds and cracked up laughing. And I came up to him afterwards. I was like, so I was thinking this, that, and the third. He was like, yeah, same. And <laughs> it was like. It was a complete conversation without having to say anything at all. And so I always wanted to kind of like create something that like I I would hope that, you know, when they read when they read it, my people could be like, oh, yeah, I know what he's I know what he's doing with this. I know what this I know what this really is. This is uh, this is code switching with, you know, just kind of like magic. And um which which kind of like plays a little bit into like you know stuff that happens in the end and like how that all works out or whatever. But um, so to explain it without I guess to explain it non thematically, it's um, it's a magic that you kind of that kind of gives you the ability to speak this uh, speak this demonic language basically. And as you as you speak it, people that don't know the language can't actually hear you. They think you're saying something else. So you could basically be like talking to somebody. They, they think you're talking about um, their shoes look clean or whatever. And whole time you, you poison their blood or something. So it's like, it was, it was something to, I wanted to like show how powerful it, uh, you know, 
code switching is for people and how it is a system of protection and how it is a you know a system of defense and so on and so forth so go ahead lp yeah i, I think i picked that up and i was like it, it was i'm actually reading like a research book about like uh qualitative research for black storytelling and like never like clicked to me until later and i was like oh that makes perfect sense that like black and queer people separately and you know as a unit have had to like have conversations past people who might mean them harm to say things that, that, but say them in a way that the other, that the target audience hears them. And then another audience like is like clueless. So like thinking about like weaving, you know, paths to uh, liberation into quilts or cornrows or, you know, the prose of Zora Neale Hurston. Yeah. I thought the, that part of the magic system, I was like, oh, I see what he's doing. That's cool. That's very, very nice. Yeah. And I mean, I even remember this is before a lot of this uh, lingo got popularized and adapted, kind of showing my age here. But uh, I remember when T and Shade was exclusively like a black queer thing. When you used to say, you used to be like, yeah, what's the T? Most people didn't know what you would actually say. Like, you know, it eventually got popularized. Thanks, Housewives. But, uh, you know, it used to be, yeah, there used to be a time where, like, you could say certain things and you you would be having the whole conversation and a straight person wouldn't have an idea what you were talking about. You were still walk- talking past people. Yeah, 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 completely past them. Yeah, you could be talking about them right to their face. They wouldn't even know it. Because you also had to be able to warn each other. You had to be able to let someone know, like, hey, this person that you're with right now is actually not safe. And I'm trying to tell you this without actually letting them know I'm telling you it. So, I actually, this is good that we ask these questions because I'm going to read the dedication to you for a minute. And uh, Okay. To, to that teenage boy who never thought he'd find this life, thank you for holding on and for my family and friends that have never always understood my imagination but loved it anyway. I want you to talk to us about what it feels like for you about to release this novella. By the time everyone hears it, it will be out for a few days. Yep. And then now you get to look back at that little boy. And one, what would you say to him right now? And then how does that make you feel? Hmm. What would I say to him right now? I guess, you know what? I would, I would, if I could say anything, I guess I would say to him, like, you are totally fine exactly the way you are. There is, there is nothing wrong with you. I don't give a damn what any book says. There's nothing wrong with you. And, um, and leave the South. Good Lord, get out of there! Like that—that's that—that was—that's—that <laughs> that place was not. That place is not where you needed to be. And um, and how does that make me feel now? I guess uh, I mean you know it's it's I guess it's like a double edged sword. Like it's like I hate that I had to go through some of this stuff, but. I wouldn't take it back either because it's why I am where I am now because of it. So, and if, if like some of the people I have in my life, including y'all, if I had to change something, I don't know if I would still have that. Right. So I wouldn't want to change anything. So I guess, I guess, I guess um, how I feel about it is like, you know, I, I'm happy where I'm at. And if it took going through some of that to get here, and I guess so be it. Which I think also comes into some of the themes of like the book, you know, like you talked about the characters having these two different narratives and then kind of breaking down those narratives. And both of them had to break down narratives of what they thought the other was. Right. Right. But before we also go into that, I want to talk about crafting the 
the villain, right? The antagonist, which is really layered, if you ask me. We have these three opposing power governments who are trying to control. But the focal point for this particular story was the character of Desiree. And I want you to talk to me about crafting someone like her. Where do you feel like you drew inspiration from? And what was it like creating her and writing her? Okay, so she, in my mind, she's a combination of two characters. Um, she is um, Annalise Keating infused with Papa Pope. <laughs> so that that was basically how I kind of view her, right? Like she, uh, this this unrelenting. Part, she she's she's this. She's kind of like she she's she's on this mission. She's unrelenting in it, and she doesn't care who she has to use to to get to get to it. And she and she lies to herself a lot about you know the the kind of person that she is and the things that she's done and um i wanted so in my i mean i i, I don't think it was intentional when i uh, first created it but i was like yeah this is definitely a white woman but uh <laughs> i i um yeah i kind of i i and i think too if i if i'm being honest i think there's definitely some influences in there too of like uh people I've seen in corporate life. I've worked with, you know, one corporation or another for like my entire professional career, I guess. And there's always a, there's always someone like Desiree in the mix who uh, is a, who will do whatever they can to climb the ladder. And, and it's not their fault that they did awful things to you. It's just, it's just a consequence of trying to survive in the system that we all have to. So there's no personal responsibility in it. It's all, it's all a, it's all for the greater goal in the end. And then when you're like writing this character and then what she does to Vade and his sister and then the other uh, people, did you draw upon, I mean, are you paralleling it with what's happened in our own history's past? Like, did that come into play or were you just trying to think of someone who is so power hungry that will do whatever it takes to basically win. So I actually kind of drew it from, um, so when I was in college, I actually had a chance to meet um, a former uh, child soldier. And he talked to us about some of his experiences and we kind of, you know, we got to ask him questions. We kind of like, you know, he was very open to talking about this really horrible and tragic and painful thing and um it it always stuck with me and it was like one of those things that's just kind of like seared into my brain and then um there's this old lupe fiasco song and uh it's called little weapon and i always had that one in my head too because it was a song dedicated uh, to about um child soldiers and you know some of the stuff that was done to them and um Try to remember this one line that always sticks sticks to me, but he was basically like, uh, they can't even count the they're so young, they can't even count the people as they're murdering them, you know, as they're mowing them down, basically. They 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 know enough to use a gun to kill people, but they don't know enough to actually be able to count high enough to, you know, how many they actually kill. And so those two things, I think more than anything, were kind of like my sort of like uh drawing point in that and i just really kind of want to to sh to show i guess like how basically just how screwed up it is to to uh manipulate people with uh people who didn't have the the familial unit and manipulating them into being these kind of uh into soldiers basically which you know i think comes into another big theme that I took away from the novella is found family that, you know, both of these characters have the sense of found family because they're working through uh, tragedy. And 
I see that in also some of your other works that you've written, you know, that I've gotten a chance to read. Um, so can you talk about that? Like found family in this novella, why was it important to you to kind of showcase that or talk about it? Well, I think for, um, for myself and I think for a lot of queer people in general, even when you have a good immediate family, there are still some things that they will never understand about you and some parts of yourself that they will never quite get that when you find other queer people, they, that they get immediately. And it's such a breath of fresh air to, to not have to explain that thing or to not have to, um, to not have to, to, to justify why you feel the way you feel or why something offends you or why you think someone screwed up for, saying this thing or not being asked to to make compromises to be around people. And um I think for me at least, like I don't I'm I'm sure I've probably maybe talked about this somewhere, but my my dad's family, they are just such a hateful group of people towards me. And I have not that, you know, honestly then they're not even people I desire to have in, in my life anymore. But one of the things I think about having, you know, a found family is just like, it is, it's actually based in something truer because we don't have this imaginary idea of like blood relation, creating this, this set of like laws and rules about you having to uh, spend time and be close to someone. And I kind of wanted to show that, you know, that, I think the the family that you that you actively decide to choose and to have in your life is maybe maybe more powerful than the one that you get stuck with by societal standards, I guess. But so let's also talk about uh, the names of the group that each of your characters are with. So we have okay. Bade, who is a whisper, and yep. then we have Althos, who is uh, a phantom dragon. Yep. And I felt like, even to me, the names that you chose for each of these characters, I feel like vibrated meaning. Energetically, you chose a lot of these names for meaning, right? So I want to talk about why did you call Bade and that group Whispers? Like, what started that? So... I, that I drew on from, um, like CIA, James Bourne kind of stuff where like we, where we've, um, where the United States has sent people into various countries to destabilize them or to manufacture crises in, you know, in the name of the greater good, and then tries to hide their hand behind their back once they do it. You know, they try to uh, move through the world quietly, destroying shit, and until they want to blow it up, then they're not allowed to tell. But uh, I, I wanted, yeah, I wanted the group to kind of like represent that, um, that that shady, you know, uh, CIA type shit where they like go into like where they cause like the freaking Panama, like when they, the, you know, cause the issues there, when they, Iran, what they cause the issues there, when, you know, our Afghanistan, wherever, wherever we, places we've been and we've caused destabilization. I wanted them to kind of like, I was me kind of harping on that. And I, I wanted to use the word whisper because they, they, they try to do it without, without, you know, ever making a sound. All right. They try to do it in such a way as like, Oh, that just happened because those brown people are just, they're, they're not able to manage themselves at all. Like, we didn't do anything. What do you mean? And, um, yeah, so I kind of, that, that was kind of what I was going for with Whisper. I think I had a different name for it at first before Whisper. And then, uh, me and Dave talked it out. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I think, um, Whisper definitely ended up being the right choice for it. And then, um, with Phantom Dragon, so, I wanted to sort of do that, but come at it from a, like with how Whisper is kind of like something that operates quietly. I wanted to do something 
saying almost the same thing, but with a different effect, I guess, was because I think so often um, when we talk about like ground movements or civil rights movements or labor movements or whatever, we always, there's always a host of people that never get acknowledged that, that don't really get, get their time in, in the uh, spotlight. We always try to, especially in America, I feel like we always try to create a savior figure or create a heroic figure out of these movements without acknowledging that like, yeah, um, there, there is no Martin Luther King without all of the people who went to jail. Um, there, 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 there is no, you, I mean, you see it now with the writer strike, that writer strike, it took everybody making sacrifices, people, people struggling to pay bills, people, you know, people risking homes and lively, you know, livelihoods to collectively make something happen. Hopefully this, this deal sounds like it's going to be good. Um, so I think I wanted to kind of acknowledge like, yeah, uh, these these group of people who really make the change happen, they, they sometimes get kind of reduced to these these roaring ghosts in the background that like, you know, you know that they're there, but you actually never take the time to think about their names. You never take the time to think about like what they what they may have been like as individuals. And so, yeah, that's what I was kind of thinking with that. I wanted I wanted a name to, that still sounded cool, but like kind of like, you know, talk about people that um could mess stuff up but they do it they they all they don't get they don't get acknowledged they kind of get treated like shadows in the background marshall yeah no i love the the choices of names for the organizations i thought it was awesome um all the conversations that we've had as soon as i read phantom dragons i was like oh okay and then i don't want to spoil it too much but we've talked about dragons and black folks writing about dragons and and towards the end i'm just like oh okay that's badass and so i mean i love everything you're saying but like for me the sheer fact that it was on the page and i was reading it i it just made me so freaking happy man so i i was i was super stoked so i don't know that that's a personal thing but all the conversations that we've had around this stuff i just want to say how much i appreciated that like literally being able to read that from you you know what i mean Oh yeah, no, that was definitely that was definitely purposeful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, I, I'm I'm gonna have us on the damn dragon in here at some point. <laughs> no, that was yeah. great. So, talk to me about creating the uh, found family for Althus. You know, the rest of his crew. Um, one, who was your favorite to write? Okay, so first draft it was Carmola, but. In revisions, it was Sajime. So, like, yeah. So when I read first draft, I this is an exercise and like I was doing too much. There were like nine of them. And Dave was like, okay, I love what you're doing, but we're definitely gonna need to, to chop this down some. So um, so yeah, no, uh Carmola was definitely in drafting, she was my favorite, but like in revision, I definitely think um um, Sajime was uh, was my favorite. I got in advance. One of the uh, people who read it already, they kind of like DM me, and they're like, "We're going to talk about Sajime, okay?" And I was like, "Oh, that, I'm glad glad it resonated." So, yeah, with, without being too spoily, that that was a character that definitely I think some people like. Oh, I mean, I think I mean I don't care if I'm spoiling it. Everyone, just go read the book. It's it's three days later. Um, the one part where she has to wear heels and she was like, are you fucking kidding me? And I have to go uphill. I was just like, that is hilarious. And I think this is really also like, you're just so good with these little one liners or the way that these characters talk to each other. Um, There's a lot of code switching going on throughout. And I think it's even really interesting how you handle this dance that Elthos and Vade have through language. And this is where I feel like another theme of the book, the novella really comes out, right? Language about how things can be interpreted and how things can 
be created anew and how you can take language from the oppressor and retool it for yourself. I feel like there's so much being said without having to say it directly. And I thought that was really genius. And go ahead, LP. Yeah, I want to piggyback on what you said. I, the, one of the other things I really like about it is that like black people just be secretive about shit for no reason at all. <laughs> just like, I'm not going to tell nobody nothing. So you have these two people who are obviously in a relationship. They don't want to talk about being in a relationship. They don't want to talk about the fact that they know what the other person is. They're just like, but there's, there's a, there's a plausible deniability because it's like, well, you know, if you're not going to say anything, I'm just going to pretend I don't know. And like, it also speak like it's, it's the dysfunction in the relationship. It's also the dysfunction in like, you know, black family structures, both like chosen and blood. And I was just like, on the one side, it's like it, in, in another person's hands, it would have been like, if they just had a conversation, this would be over. But in this case, it's just like this mountain tension, this mountain of tension. Yeah. I really enjoy it. And so like, I also, let's just talk about like your opening scene, right? I'm going to read a section of it. Um, because I think it is amazing. <clears throat> Precise judgment was a prerequisite for Vade's work, and he could say without a doubt that nobody had an ass like Althus. Vade watched his assignment, his lover, his something he didn't have the courage to name yet, walk towards the pristine, pristine ocean completely naked. Their bodies were the most honest thing between them, and Althos's was a masterpiece to behold. Wide shoulders, smooth light brown skin, and ample cheeks they'd never got enough of cupping his hands around. So, like, I just feel like automatically this is, like, really queer, black, and you're just like, you better be ready for this. Because you're either really intrigued by that or people are going to be like, nope, this book isn't for me. So I want to talk about that opening paragraph and, you know, having like, I don't know, do you ever think like, oh my gosh, my parents are going to read this. My sister and my brother are going to read this. Like, but you just really went for it. And I think it does so many good things in that first paragraph. It already kind of sets the tone for both of those characters within that first paragraph. So talk to me about writing or at least like opening up with that first scene. Cause I'm sure like it could have not been the first paragraph you had uh, the first time you're writing it. So I just want to talk about like, how does that feel to have that powerful, you know, so clearness right there. It, it actually, that, it, that is actually for the most part, what I first wrote, I think, the literal first line though was um nobody had to ask like out this. That was my first line. And then uh Dave was like, okay, I like it, but let's 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 you know, let's let's clean it up a little bit. And I think that's how we came to that paragraph. But um that paragraph was actually inspired by Beyonce, believe it or not. Well, it's sort of secondhand. So there was this interview that the artist Miguel was giving about this uh the song he wrote for Beyonce Rocket. And he was like, yeah, you know, she told me that, like, when I come to uh studio and write this, that nothing's off limits, like nothing's off limits. And he was like, so what could I write that I would just want to say to Beyonce right off the bat? And uh, what I would want Beyonce to say to me right off the bat. And the song is like, let me sit this ass on you. And I was just like, that's bold as hell that you were like, oh, I'm going to make Beyonce say this. And so I, all, that stuck with me. And I always was like, you know what? I want to like, I want to come into a story with like that kind of just bold sexual energy right off the bat. And so when I first did this one, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just going for it. We're going to get, we're going to get like gay black men just like being sexually into each other and just not being afraid to admit it like right off the bat. And like you said, Will, it was either you're going to like this and you're going to come along for the ride or you're going to close the book and be like, it's not for me. Um, as far as like family and stuff, yeah, I wor- I, I, I don't worry about it. I do think about it. but And this isn't to sound grim, but it is one of these things I think about when it comes to life is that in a long enough scale of things, no one's going to remember shit I did. So 
I'm going to I'm going to enjoy this life and live this life as authentically and as upfront as I want to. And especially when it comes to my writing, if I'm going to have to spend months with the story, molding it, shaping it, rereading it, whatever, I want to make sure that I I pour myself unapologetically into it from start to finish. So so you know if if that if that makes some people uncomfortable, if that makes some people blush, if that makes them a little skittish, well, their reaction to my work isn't my problem. So well I also want to even just talk cuz you know, it gets it gets even like um steamier as we go through that like first chapter, which is great. But I I, this is where I feel like the difference is from you writing these scenes and then from, say, I don't know, um, when straight women write gay characters, um, the idea, what I love about these two men is the, I, the, the idea of someone being a top and a bottom. And there is not this role of what traditionally they should be or what people think someone who's going to be the bottom is actually going to behave. Do you know what I mean? And I think yeah, that yeah. gets really, that gets really simplified in a lot of other people who aren't queer or aren't who queer men um, writing it. So I feel like there's even in every single one of your sex scenes though, there's multiple things being done, you know, the characters are finding information out about each other. They're finding information out about how they communicate. And there's this one scene in particular, and I'm spoiling it, so I don't care. Read it, everyone. It's going to take you a couple hours. Um, Alphys is riding Vade, but his back is is to his face because he's looking at his injured leg. And I felt like, wow, that is such a great, when you're thinking of a spy, like this is such a great way to enjoy what you're doing, but also detailing information. So I want to talk about that scene for a minute and like what made you think of it? And it was just so perfectly laid out the way it did the way it was so i guess for me to to kind of like your point about like how i think sometimes cis women in particular right gay gay men is that like they think we only do missionary apparently are uh <laughs> are, are you know are they uh they they don't they, they, they act like this like no, there's nothing primal about our sex or whatever. There's nothing like lustful about it. It's all just very like, oh, I want to be with you forever. And let's let's sail off into the sunset and make sweet love. And it's like, no, sometimes like, have you seen, uh, have you seen gay men? Sometimes they are, they, they, they are literally like just fucking like dogs. Like they're, they're not, it's like, there's like no, there's, there's, there's not always a deep rooted romantic context to it. Sometimes they just like having sex. And it's an enjoyable activity for them. And that's all it is. And and they move on from it. So what I kind of wanted to do with this one was like, you know, one show that, yeah, um, sex happens in other positions besides a missionary. And that, you know, that also, too, when when you're someone with their particular skill set and you're also into this person, you are going to pay attention to everything about them. Like when 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 some people engage in sex and they're really, really into that person, they notice these little things. They notice that little mole. They notice, you know, they notice the the way they like squint their eyes or some shit or whatever. They just, they, they, they notice these things because they're that into that person that they're paying attention to all those things. And, and yeah, sometimes I think, well, not sometimes, a lot of times I think like, like since women forget or they just don't know about these, these various little intricate details, like, to bring up another book, um, The Spirit That Cuts Through Water, they have this uh, scene towards the end where they actually mention, and I, I, I've never really seen this come up in, the, in, the, in like gay sex with cis women, is that getting it in there can hurt sometimes at first. Like it's not it's not always smooth selling right off the bat. And I, I appreciate that little detail so much. And I was like, 
yeah, okay, this is what this is what getting stuff written by people who have authentically lived these experiences can do because you can insert those little details or bring that um bring that additional nuance to it. So and then, you know, like you know, reading the book and it's interesting because all of the sex scenes move the plot forward, right? Like there's nothing in there that is just to be like overtly sexual. Like each of them tells something about the character. Each of it moves the plot forward. Um, at the same time though, as much as like, I think it was very like, I don't want to say raw is not like the type word. Like you feel the sexual energy in there. Like it's hot, right? Like it's a sexy book. But you really have these characters, like at the end of the day, like I was telling one of my friends who's black and queer, it's one of my friends who said, I never knew there were stories written like this for us. And um, I said, you know, to me, the heart of the book is also about love. It's really about love is messy and it's complicated. And you will see things about your partner that you don't necessarily like, but when you talk about it it's like vade says to alphys i can't change what i did i can only tell you and promise you that i'm going to move forward from this in a different way and i felt like that was really transformative and like it showed a lot of like healthy communication and it wasn't it was messy. I don't want to tell anyone why it was messy because of what happened. Cause we can get into that like in our other part two conversation, but why did you do it that way? And was it important for you to show that type of communication or was it just something you were just writing and work and like, okay, this is what it is. So it, it there was definitely, no, there's definitely some thought process behind it. So I think again, kind of like, to that point about like how sometimes people who aren't queer men write queer relationships, uh, uh, queer male relationships, they they have it where like this person was our this was my first lover ever, and they're who I'm going to be with forever, and I'm there that we've never had sex with anybody else, and we just are going to ride off into the sunset, and it's going to be great, and um, and it's just going to be so good, and 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 it's. Just like, that's not really how it works. Not for all of us. For some of us, yeah. Some of us are lucky in that respect. And um, But for, I think for a lot of us that it's just, just that's just not how it works. Like we, we go through messy relationships. We go through breakups. We go through, we go through the whole gamut of things. And, and I get why I think sometimes people don't write us that way is because they're scared of, I think of being accused of like creating negative rap or creating like bad rap or whatever the, these, these buzzwords that get thrown around. But um, I just wanted to write something that I think felt real and felt like, you know, this is what, this is what people go through. People come with baggage into a relationship. They come with baggage. They come with, they come with their history. They come with their preferences, their needs and wants. And, and, you know, it, it really is like two universes colliding, like when two people are trying to get together and you're trying to like figure out like how to, to mesh, mesh your worlds and make it work. And um, yeah, so that was kind of like my thought person. I just wanted to show, you know, something that felt that, uh, that felt real or not. And I can't, so this is how many drafts I've been through. So I don't even know if this one detail I'm thinking of made it into the final draft. Cause y'all, y'all read it. Y'all could tell me if it did or did it. I made mention of a threesome at one point, and I don't know if that actually made it into the final draft or not. I can't remember. Okay, so yeah, that line mm. got cut. So there was going to be, um, there was actually going to be, not so I can talk about this without being spoiled. So there was actually a scene at one point where um, they had had a threesome, but the person that was involved in the, th- the threesome was actually one of um, Altus's buddies who was trying to help get some info on Vade, and it was kind of messy, and I just, you know, that didn't end up happening, but I wanted to show that too. You know, I was like, hey, like gay men have threesomes. It happens. It's a thing. But um, that one didn't make it into the uh, final cut. But um, yeah, I just kind of wanted to show like something that just felt more more true to the experiences I've seen and just like more true to some of the experiences I've had, you know, and just like, uh, yeah, I want I wanted to 
create a book that like even if you didn't like science fiction and fantasy, if you were at, if if you were at least a, a, a um if you were at least a, a gay man who wanted a, a story that felt more authentic, you could still get that here. And so that that's kind of that was kind of my vibe when I was trying to um create that create their their tension and their relationship. It's I think what's interesting though about the way that you did this in such a short form is you've you've said so much without it being a hundred and twenty thousand word book, right? Like there are when you talked about being messy, it's not messy to be messy. It's messy because of where these two characters have come from and what society has placed on them. And I'll never forget, I forget when we, it was, I think it was just one of the episodes where it was just me and you, like Dorm Pride a couple years ago. You said something to me like, I want to write two queer black men who are like working through stuff and it's messy. And because you, and you quoted something and I forget the actual quote, but it was like, they don't teach you about a love like ours. I remember that quote. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kept thinking about you talking about that. And I just, and I constantly think of my friends when I talk about you with them and they read your work now. And they're always so like, wow, I didn't know this could be written. I didn't know you could, this could be the way it is. So it's like, I think it's just very profound. I think when people read this, um, I think there's so many, so much intersectionality that can be taken away from the book and society structures. And you did this in a really tight novella. You know, which I think is pretty fucking amazing. Go ahead, Nick. Yeah. So I kind of everything you guys have been talking about, like, if, like the whole first chapter is a masterclass on first chapters. We get how messy the relationship is. We get their wants, their needs, like the promises that are expressed in that opening chapter. Oh my gosh, Brent. Like, Full on master level class on that one. That I think that's what impressed me the most was your opening chapter, and it is how well you set the pace of the book from that point forward. And like I feel like every point of the way, like it's a reflection throughout. Like you kept your promises. Like we're talking about messy gay relationships, and I'm just like, I don't know how else you do a better opening chapter to lay that foundation for the rest of the book and to let people be heard and seen at the same time. While also, for someone who is straight, welcoming me into this world and setting me up for the right expectations. Like, seriously, kudos to you on that. Uh, thanks, man. Uh, I, I, you know what? I Editing, <laughs> I'll just say that. Editing is like so, 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 such an important part of the process. So, um, yeah, the thing that is now is definitely a product of you know, conversations with Dave and and then me just, you know, thinking about what I actually want to say and how, how I really want to say it. And yeah, I, I, I like density. I, I, you know, I always have in my stories, like I've always liked books that are doing a lot, like as much as they can. Like I, I don't, I'm not really one for, and, and I'm sure there's places for it, but I'm not one, I don't really like stories that like, that linger. Like I want, I want something that's like moving that we have, we have stuff happening. I want to feel like this world is, I want to feel like there's a hundred other stories happening in this world that you don't know about, but that you feel like are going on. And, and um, yeah, I always try to kind of like keep that in mind when I'm, when I'm creating my stuff. Well, I guess we're going to ask our last question for the night, which shouldn't be a surprise, but to let everyone know, this is just like part one. This is going to be like an overview and we're going to do some deep dive into some things about the novel that are 100% spoiler filled. Um, So our last question, Brent, is after you wrote this novella, which was really hard, 
because of a lot of the emotional stuff going on. What keeps you writing? You know what? Um, because I feel like even as much as I got to say with this novella, I still have more I want to say. I still have other things I want to deal with. I still want to, uh, I want to, yeah, there's things I want to say. Like this book was about, uh, you know, two queer men and their relationship and how they, how they work through it. The next thing I'm working on is about black queer community and what do we mean to each other and what should we do and not do for each other and how that, how that plays out. So yeah, I have more to say. I have more things I want to talk about. So yeah, that's what, Keeps me going. And let me say this, because there are things you took out of the book, and I can feel a bigger world, right? And so, uh, and and it's not that what's there feels like something's missing, but, like, I can feel that there's more world to explore uh, in this world. And so it also makes me super excited to see what happens when you have more than 40,000 worlds to sprawl out into. Because... This is expansive in this this uh this finite case. And like I'm really curious what you're gonna do with ninety thousand words or a hundred thousand words. I have a draft done, so we'll see what happens when I get to editing that thing. But How yeah, many words is it? It's a hundred thousand. It's a hundred thousand. Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah. We're gonna see what happens when I uh, edit. But oh, that's awesome. So yeah, more to say for sure. And this has been Just Keep Writing, a podcast for writers, by writers, to keep you writing. You can find us at justkeepwriting.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Feel free to reach out to any of us on our social medias, and please jump in our Just Keep Writing Discord channel. Links to all of that is in the show notes. Lastly, please support our show by going to patreon.com slash justkeepwriting. We offer daily writing prompts, early access to podcast episodes, and much more. Thanks for listening, and just keep writing. Thank <laughs> you.